Well, it's been quite a week. Uh, the kids have gone back to school with all the fear and trepidation that that brings. Something I've been noticing this last week, in fact, is uh, there's a lot of folks around who are very scared about what might happen at school with uh, kids going to school and teachers going back in the middle of a global pandemic, which of course has made me think about all the people who've been serving on the front lines in the last while, whether they're police officers or grocery workers or or whatever, uh, healthcare workers. Uh, anyway, I wanted to spend a, just a couple minutes, uh, I wanna pray for, for all of you who are in those sorts of situations. Uh, but before I do, I just wanna give you a little encouragement. Um, this is most of our first pandemic, right? I mean, like most of us have not been in this situation before and we're not really sure how it works. Uh, truth be known, I, d I don't think anyone knows how it works. The rules keep changing from governments and they're trying their best, but ultimately we gotta give each other a little bit of grace. Uh, we gotta give e ourselves a little bit of grace and we probably just need to relax a little bit and know that the Lord is still in charge despite all of the difficulties that we're facing. So I think some people need to hear that this week. They take a deep breath and realize that even if you're not doing things perfectly, uh, the way you would in normal circumstances, it's, it's okay. God is capable of taking our feeble attempts and using them for His, for his uh, glory and our good. So uh, we can be confident in that. So listen, let me pray for us, and then we'll start looking at God's Word together. So let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace, and I'm thankful, Father, for all of the people who you have placed in the front lines dealing with all of the issues that we're facing now with the pandemic and and other things, those who have to make decisions from the government, uh, those who have to lead kids in school, the police officers who are on the streets trying to serve and protect the community, the healthcare workers who are helping people in the hospital and even the people testing and all of that, Lord. We're all a little bit worried and a little bit fearful. So God, I pray that you would be kind to us, Father. You know the stuff of which we're made, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us in our hour of need, help us to know that you are near and that you care for us deeply. So I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Right, you're gonna need to uh, have a Bible. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 is what we're gonna look at today. Um, if you're turning there or uh, before we even get going, let me just tell you, um, I had a friend a number, of, uh, a number of years ago who was my mentor for my doctoral uh, studies. I call him my friend because I, I became friendly with him. Uh, he had a story that he told that um, was a little bit shocking. The way it went was that he was teaching a class. Uh, he's a well-known philosopher and uh, he was teaching a class and in the, in the doorway of the class was one of those classroom windows that has, uh, you know, it's mostly wood, but then there's a, a glass portion, a long glass portion that you can peek through. Well, apparently one of his former students had come that day and had walked down the hallway and had peeked into the classroom watching the teacher uh, teach. And he was surprised, the, the guy who was looking through the doorway. He looked quizzically, and the teacher actually saw him looking that way, and, and he was, um, the way that the guy at the door was looking was really odd. Well, after the class, uh, the teacher went, my friend, went and, and found the guy, and uh, they said hello, they asked how, the, how his ministry was doing, um, and then 
the former student said, um, who were those guys who were standing with you behind the podium while you were teaching? And the teacher said, I'm sorry, what? What do you mean guys standing with me? He said, yeah, there were three guys who were standing with you, a real short guy, kind of a medium-sized guy on either one of your sides, and then there was a really tall, big guy who's standing looking directly over your head at the class. It was kind of a weird, uh, they were very close to you, and it was kind of odd that they were looking at the classroom, and I just didn't know, were they a special guest or, or what? I mean, they were standing really close to you, so it, I mean, it looked like they were like your, your, your protectors or something. My friend said, listen, I was all alone in that classroom teaching those students. Now, the, the former student said, I, what? No, 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 there really were. I should have taken a picture of it because there were these three guys standing next to him. They had this back and forth. Now, my professor, my friend, he, he ended up um, making a point that, look, there are real unseen forces in the world that we get a glimpse into from time to time. Now, when I heard that, I thought to myself, eh, really? I mean, maybe the guy who was just standing at the door was, I don't know, maybe he just had a bad burrito that morning or something. I don't know. But there have been other stories that I've heard um, from friends who I wouldn't expect to be talking about an unseen world or dangers uh, of the unseen world. They, they seem really grounded people, uh, believe in science, those sorts of things, and, and yet they have interesting stories to tell as well. One of my friends actually, um, he told me a story about how uh, uh, over a series of nights a few summers ago, he, uh, he would wake up at, I don't know, three, four o'clock in the morning, and in the doorway of his, of his room, uh, he usually had the, the door open to his room, and there was a light that they, he kept on in the hallway, and in the doorway, there was a shadowy figure that would stand and he would lurch out of bed and stare really closely at it, and then it would disappear. And he'd lay back down. And a few nights later, he woke up, and the shadowy figure was there, but kind of halfway between the door and his bed now. He'd sit up, and it'd disappear, and he'd go back, lay back down. A few nights later, it was, he sat up, and it was at the edge of his bed. A few nights later, he sat up, and it was hovering over him. A few nights later, he couldn't even sit up. It was like it was laying on top of him. Now, when he told me those story, I was like, oh, you're just trying to get attention, I guess, right? But he said, no, I'm not kidding. I'm not sure what to do about it. I have no idea. He would ask me questions about, you're a pastor. How should I handle these things? All of us have stories like this. All of us have friends who say this, and we're not really sure what to do with all of that. What should we make of these things? Stories about angels or, or perhaps demons, about uh, kind unseen beings and malicious unseen beings. We, we talk in the Christian church about the reality of God, and then we use words like Satan or the devil, and we're not, we're not sure what to make of, of all of that. Are they real? Should we fear them? What does the Bible teach about stuff like this? The subject that we're talking about here, uh, if, you, if you talk to Christian pastors or theologians, is uh, called spiritual warfare. 
It's that area of, of study. And over the next six weeks, we're going to be talking about it. We're doing a series on spiritual warfare where the Bible is going to have some things to say about angels and demons and Satan and ultimately the power of Jesus over all of it. So I want to start this week by, by looking at perhaps one, like one of the key verses that establishes the idea that there is an unseen world and we have something to do with it. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And in this little verse, just one little verse, we're going to see a few things. Or at least this is how we're going to structure our time in the next few minutes. Number one, you're going to see that spiritual forces are real. Secondly, that we wrestle with those forces. And then finally, the question that should be on, on most of our minds, who, who's going to win the wrestling match? So they're, they're real. We wrestle with them. But who's going to win? So... Deal with the first one. Spiritual forces are real. Here's what Ephesians 6 verse 12 says. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I mean, what it's saying is really pretty straightforward. It's not hard to follow that we have a, a wrestle, we have a struggle, and that struggle we would think from our point of view in our, in our lives is against, you know, physical stuff. When we have difficulty with the government, we're wrestling with the government. Difficulty with a friend, we're wrestling with a friend. When we have difficulty with our world around us, it's usually with physical things. When the guy cuts us off, that's a physical thing that's going on. Um, but this passage is saying, actually, the struggle that we have as Christians is not actually against the flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual authorities and powers. It's not against the seen things. It's against the, the unseen things. So, so Paul in, in Ephesus, right, this book of Ephesians, Paul in, in the book of Acts tells some stories. There's some stories about him in, in the city of Ephesus. And one of the things that happens in Ephesus is that a big riot starts because Paul is uh, casting demons out of some people. And uh, they stop worshiping their idols, which means, of course, the people who make the idols are losing money. So the silversmiths and the people who make the idols are, are freaking out and getting very angry. And so they accuse Paul of turning the city against, against the great god who oversaw the city of, Artem, uh, city of Ephesus, and her name was Artemis. And so... The riot began and they would chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul would be like, whoa, 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 I'm, I, let me explain what's going on here. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, from the physical point of view, Paul's looking at this and saying, well, yeah, I'm, I'm wrestling now against a, a riot, against some silversmiths. I'm, I'm having trouble with this physical reality, but according to Ephesians 6.12, that's only part of it. That the physical reality is actually being driven by non-physical entities. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of, of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, when people come to a realization that the Bible talks about stuff like this, it talks about an unseen world that's, that's very real, as real as the physical world that we, we see, and that that unseen world is motivating a lot of the things that are happening in the physical world. There's a couple of different misguided directions that, that we go in response to that. One of those is to basically respond by saying, oh, come on, 
that's a pile of rubbish. That's, that's ridiculous. It can't possibly be true. We don't live in the Middle Ages where people, you know, thought that way. We are modern people, the children of the Enlightenment. We realize that the things that are real in the world are actually physical things, and our brains play, play uh, games with us sometimes because we had uh, the wrong smelling salts that morning or whatever. I remember... Uh, when I was in seminary, my wife was gone for uh, a weekend. She went to Austin, Texas, which is south of Dallas, where we lived, uh, by a few hours. She was there with some teachers, and they were doing some training, and I, I stayed behind. It was before we had children. And, and, you know, as Providence would have it, it was a stormy, a dark and stormy night in, in Dallas. And uh, I had heard that day about a book that, that was being recommended by some, some friends of mine. And they said, oh, it's called The Bondage Breaker. And it's, it's about the spiritual realities that are behind the physical stuff. You know, Ephesians 6, 12 kind of things. And I, so I was like, oh, okay. This guy named Neil Anderson wrote the book. And so I picked it up from the library and went home and I started reading this book. And in it, it told story after story after story about this guy's experiences with this unseen world. He would be standing in the bathroom and there'd be, you know, uh, scratches on the, on the mirror and messages being given on the mirror. And I, honestly, as the stories mounted, I started to freak out. You know, the lightning's outside and the rain's coming down in Dallas. When it rains, it like legit rains. It's like the prairie rains. And it was pouring down outside and I was all alone and I was sitting in our dark apartment reading this book and every time some noise would be made in the other room, I was freaking out. I remember grabbing a baseball bat and walking around the corner and wondering who was there and going sitting back down and reading the book a little bit more. I was convinced that this was all happening until at one moment I thought, this is crazy. I'm, I'm, this is crazy. I'm totally fearful for something that can't possibly be true. This guy's making these stories up. And that's the way a lot of us respond to it. We say, come on, this is nonsense. Uh, my uh, my, uh, my brother-in-law, when he was younger, he, he uh, had some car trouble. They were traveling through Europe. They had some car trouble. And uh, he was with a couple other guys who were really into a lot of the Unseen World stuff. And um, their car broke down. And so these guys started to pray and, and, and declare the demons in the car dead and all sorts of things. My brother-in-law was like, oh, come on. It's just we got this certain part of the car. Man, I don't know what part of the car it was. Don't ask me. But like it got wet. And if it's wet, it, it stops the car. We just need to let it dry for a little while. So they went and got a cup of coffee. And the guys kept every couple seconds declaring that the demons needed to get out of the car. And they came back. And of course, the car was better. And they say, see the victory of Jesus. And my brother-in-law was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This is, a, this is a natural phenomenon that happens when that part of the car gets wet. It needs to dry, and once it dries, it's fine. And many of us in the Western world, we look at people like, like that who are freaking out all the time about demons and unseen realities, and we say, you need to get with the program. You need to get more modern. 
Because we're the kinds of people now who believe in the power of science to explain our world. When, when, uh, when the people who make the gum want to advertise how great their gum is and that a bunch, they say, you know, four out of five dentists approve this gum and they put a guy in a white lab coat standing there with his little name here and a stethoscope around his neck and saying, oh, I approve this. And that convinces us, oh, well, the doctor believes it, the scientists believe it. If you, if you can put it in a Bunsen uh, under a Bunsen burner, or sorry, an over a Bunsen burner in a beaker, and you can test it, then that's the way we gain knowledge. Do you remember uh, the Scooby-Doo shows from years ago? Um, I'm old enough to remember back when they made the Scooby-Doo in the 1970s, when I was a really little kid, and we used to watch the Scooby-Doo. The old Scooby-Doo shows, there was always uh, something crazy that was happening that looked like it was... Um, it looked like it was, you know, a ghost or some sort of monster or some sort of immaterial thing. But at the end of every one of those shows, the old Scooby-Doo, what you'd end up realizing is actually it was just a guy in a cape with a pulley system. There was always some logical explanation for everything that took place, right? And we remember the, the end of the show, they'd, they'd take the mask, it was always a mask, mask off of the guy, and he would say, ah, I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids. But the message, of course, in that old Scooby-Doo to people like me in the 1970s and 80s was, look, the stuff that you think is going on that's really weird, the stuff even that the Bible describes as miracles and things like that, they, they're not real. They're not real. There's a logical explanation for all of it. Our goal is to find the logic in, in it all. So when we are confronted with this stuff that the Bible says about, you know, our struggle is against rulers, authorities, and spiritual forces in, in the heavenly realms. We read that kind of stuff. Our response should be, no, I'm a man of science. I'm a woman of science. I don't believe in that kind of thing. Uh, it's the 21st century. I don't need to be superstitious. And that's one misguided way we can go. Because the Bible actually does suggest that these things are real. But the other misguided way we can go is to be so into it that we see a demon behind every bush. That's our goal is to look for what demonic forces are around. We map out, some people map out the locations of particular demons and they get their names and they cast them out in this region and that region and that the goal for every Christian, in fact, is to cast out the demons that are in them. That's the problem with their lives. The reason they struggle with sin is because of the demons. There was a guy actually who... Uh, I used to watch uh, videos of, he's a, he's a pastor out of Texas, and um, you know, we used to watch videos of his sermons during the day, he was a televangelist, and man, he was funny. Uh, we didn't buy into most of what he said, but one, I remember one sermon that he preached that stuck with me, and here's, here's how it went. He would start talking about things that were going wrong in people's lives. He'd say, all right, I'm going to do my Texas accent here, are you, are you dealing with trouble? Is your car having trouble? Do you have financial trouble? And you think it's just something that's sitting right in front of you in the, in the physical world? Well, maybe you got a demon. And then you go over and over again about that. You start describing something else, you know. Are you sick? Are your kids sick? Well, maybe they got a demon. <laughs> this whole sermon was that whole, was that whole thing. 
And that's the way that we think, or oh, some people approach this. Maybe you got a demon. Sometimes uh, I've been across some people like this, you know, face-to-face, uh, um, people who I, I like a great deal. Uh, I worked at a camp years ago, and one of the kids during one of the activities uh, twisted his ankle. And the group of the church that was there was, was really given over to some of these things, the church group that was there. And as soon as the guy twisted his ankle, there was like 30 people that surrounded this, this guy, and they prayed for him, which is awesome, right? Because some of us, we wouldn't consider praying. We'll say, oh, I'll just take him into the medical tent and we'll sort him out. But they went around and they prayed for him, but their prayers were really interesting. They prayed that the demon that broke his ankle would be cast out of him. So their rationale behind the broken ankle was, oh, the demon did it. Their, their rationale about uh, the rain on certain days during the week was that the demons did it. I remember them praying in the mornings that, that the demons that were, that were controlling the weather would be cast out so that they'd have a, a good day on the lake. People in the West, right, like I said before, we, we don't usually believe that sort of stuff, or at least we didn't in, in years gone by. But there's been a little bit of a shift recently so that we are starting to, people out, even outside the church are starting to say, actually, it's really kind of naive to think that these things aren't real. Instead, we need to realize that, that they, they might very well be something to it. Even outside the church, you know, last year, there was a, a woman whose name was Teresa Caputo or Caputo. She's called the Long Island Medium. She showed up at the Abbotsford Entertainment Sports Complex and she does basically crowd readings. So she goes in there and she listens to spirits, she says, and she just goes over to a person and she can tell them their life history. She knows things about them, like the pet names that they, they use for their deceased um, husband. And she can say, well, this is what your husband says to you from beyond the grave, or this is, and she says she follows the spirits for this information. It's remarkable stuff. You can watch it on TV oftentimes. You can go to her shows and people report. It's amazing. There's no way she could know those things about them. So our, the wider culture now is actually starting to, to buy into this. You can even see it in the in, in shift that's happened in Scooby-Doo. We can tell all things by what's happened in Scooby-Doo. It used to be that, oh, all of this stuff had a, had a, a, a legitimate scientific explanation back when I was growing up, but now if you watch the modern Scooby-Doo, nope, it's all actually ghosts and, and, and uh, non-physical entities, and they don't make any attempt to try to say that it's uh, fake and uh, exists in the real world by real people with hoods on who would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those meddling kids. So there's been a shift. But each one of these directions, I think, really are misguided when it comes to what the scriptures have to teach. There is a danger in both neglecting the reality of the unseen world and in obsessing over the powers in it. The Bible's really clear that there's a world we don't see, but it's also really clear that our God is in control of it and all other things so that we don't need to fear. It's a story about Elisha in the Old Testament. It's a story about uh, the prophet Elisha who uh, is in a city and uh, the, the enemy has surrounded the city with their, with their chariots. They found him there. They're going to lay siege to the city and finally capture him. And uh, his, his partner comes out and sees them in the, in the 
horizon and says to Elisha, oh my goodness, we're, we're all dead. We're, we're not going to get out of here. Look at the chariots. And Elisha says, no, well, just, just wait. Actually, there's more defending us than there are defending them. And as soon as uh, he says this, the sky is peeled back and his partner, his friend, is able to see the chariots of fire arranged in the heavenly realms ready to defend them. In the end, those, uh, those chariots of fire uh, are able to blind all the actual physical chariots so that, that Elisha goes and says, hey, why don't we go to another city? You guys got the wrong city. Go to this other city. And they, they, they get unblinded when they're around the other city and realize they've been duped. But that idea that there's this non-physical reality that is behind these, this is what the Bible is, is teaching repeatedly, that there are two very real realities. There is the physical world that we deal with and there's the non-physical world that is there as well. But God is sovereign and powerful over it all. So, spiritual forces are real. Second, and I wanna read verse 12 again of Ephesians 6, we wrestle with those forces. So. It's not just that they're real and they're out there. We actually have something to do with them. Verse 12 again, for our struggle, keyword, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That Greek word struggle is a really interesting one. It's a word that is used basically for wrestling. So you could translate it, we wrestle. Wrestling in the ancient world was a really interesting um, activity. Uh, it, was, it happened in all the main competitive events like the Olympics or the Corinthian Games. Wrestling was one of the main things that they did. Uh, they started wrestling by standing up though, okay? Uh, they also did it without any clothes on, so let's not emulate it these days. But they started by standing up and there were certain forms of wrestling that included not just like wrestling, but you could punch as well. And so, you know, modern MMA, uh, modern UFC fighting is a lot like what they did in those, in those days. And the thing that you didn't want to have happen when you were wrestling in those days, just like now in MMA, is you don't want to go to the ground. You don't want to fall. The goal is to stand, to remain standing. Even in hand-to-hand -hand combat, when it came to, you know, the, if you think about the Lord of the Rings movies and the big armies coming and joining together and, you know, having hand-to-hand -hand combat with their swords and stuff, the, you'll lose if you go to ground. You need to remain standing, which is why Paul in Ephesians 6 repeats that word. He keeps saying, stand firm then. Stand firm then. Wear the armor of God. Stand, stand, stand. Because that's the image that he's, that, that he's playing on here. So we are basically in close quarters wrestling or MMA fighting or Lord of the Rings battle fighting with the forces of darkness. That's what he describes here. One of my um, favorite stories in uh, the book of Acts is actually in Acts chapter 19, uh, where Luke, who's the author of Acts, is trying to describe the power of the Apostle Paul's supernatural ministry. Like how much did God's hand rest up upon Paul? And so here's how the story goes. Acts 19 verse 11 says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. That's a remarkable fact. I mean, you don't find this very often, that God's hand is on someone in such a degree that, you know, even the handkerchiefs that touched him are able to heal people elsewhere. Verse 13, though, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they basically saw the success of Paul 
and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They didn't believe in Jesus, but they just tried to use his name. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So the seven sons of Siva, who was a Jewish chief priest, they were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, though. Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When the, this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came openly and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, a lot of money. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. There's a couple of things that you need to see here. I mean, obviously, the first thing that you need to know is the fight is with unseen forces. Like it's, it's, it's real. And that these guys think that they can deploy certain, you know, mantras to win the battle. But actually, no. Actually, no. It's the hand of God rests strong upon the ones who legitimately believe him. They are the ones who have success over the powers of darkness. Because the Jesus who dwells in them, who has his hand upon them, has actually defeated the enemy. That's why people turn away from their sorceries, because they see that this Jesus that Paul preaches, he's more powerful than all the sorcery that they've turned to, so they're willing to throw their scrolls in and, and burn it all. Now, that should give you some indication as to the answer to the last question that we want to deal with here. Who's going to win? Who's, who's going to win? The spiritual forces are real. We wrestle with those forces, but who, who's going to win it? Um, you know, most of the people who hold uh, certain views about spiritual warfare have had those views um, formed, honestly, by a famous fiction book that was written in the 1980s, and it's called This Present Darkness. There's a series, in fact, about that book. Uh, it was written about a small town where uh, there is, it describes a pastor and the difficulties he's having in that town with certain people and weird things are taking place and there's a new age movement and there's a pastor of another church that's in cahoots with the new age movement. and. And then the scene shifts to the heavenly realms and you realize that actually all that's happening on the ground is being motivated by the heavenly realms. And so most people I know who grew up, you know, who are my, I'm in my 40s, even people who are younger have read This Present Darkness. It's kind of a page turner. And they've, they've learned, or at least they've formed most of their opinions about, the, about spiritual warfare and the spiritual world through this guy, Frank Peretti, who wrote this fiction book. In the story... Uh, Tal, who is one of the, uh, he's actually one of the chief angels getting ready to do battle against the demons. The demons are coming toward the city for a big onslaught, kind of an Armageddon fight. And Tal is with his, his army and he's asked by one of the other angels, who will win? Who's going to win this battle? And Tal says, I don't know. It just depends on how much they pray, speaking about the people. 
prayers apparently fuel the angel's power and defeat the demons. Can I just say that that's not, that's not the case. Like prayer is amazing and fantastic, but I'm, I'm telling you that uh, there is no question about who's going to win. The angels are not sitting up in heaven or, uh, you know, uh, arrayed against the enemies and thinking to themselves, man, I just don't know if we're going to be able to win this one. Because the victory has been won. Jesus has won it. So in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, here's what it says. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, there's the same language, right? That's who we wrestle against, those powers and authorities. Jesus disarmed, past tense, the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the cross of Jesus was this point in history where, where they thought they were putting Jesus to shame, but actually what was happening according to Paul was that Jesus was putting to all the powers to shame. They thought they won the battle, but he actually won the battle. He disarmed them. You also get language like this earlier, say in the book of Mark. In the early part of the book of Mark, the, the Pharisees are saying to to. To, about Jesus, well, the only way he can cast out demons, because he was, he was casting demons out all over the place in a way that others didn't have authority to do. And so the only way he's able to do this, they said, is because he, he has the power of, of the devil. That, that's how he's doing it. He's basically the devil, and so he has authority over the demons. So here's what that reads like, Mark 3, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. He said, okay, so how can Satan drive out Satan? Because if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. That's how kingdoms fail, is when there's mutiny. If a house is divided against itself, then that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand. His end has come. In fact, here's the way it really is, says Jesus. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. So in other words, you guys are seeing me cast out the demons. It's not because... I'm a demon, and they're a demon, and we're divided against each other because that would be self-defeating. Those houses don't stand. Do you know what it is? The only way you can defeat and plunder, you defeat your enemy and plunder his stuff, defeat the strongman and plunder his stuff, is if you first tie up the strongman. First, you've got, you got the power to tie up the strongman, that you're a stronger man. You go into his house, you tie him up, and you can take his stuff. That's what's happening, says Jesus. I'm that stronger man. And Satan is bound, defeated, and ultimately at the cross, a spectacle was made of him. I triumphed over him, says Jesus. So the enemy is defeated. Jesus is bound, the strong man plundered his house, which raises, of course, the important question, why is there still a fight then? <laughs> I mean, if Jesus has won the victory, why is there a struggle? If the enemy is defeated, why is there a struggle? So let me finish by giving you a little bit of, uh, kind of some theological categories. Theologians like to talk about um, what they call the, the, the already, not yet, 
nature of the kingdom of God. So, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is already here. Jesus has begun it. He has declared victory. Jesus is sitting on his throne. The Bible says all sorts of these things. That he, he won. He made all the enemies a footstool for his feet. And yet, even though that's already the case, there is a sense that there is a future aspect of the kingdom that we, that we await, right? And you can think about all the places in the scriptures that talk about the promise that's to come, the hope that we have for the full kingdom of God and the new heavens and new earth. So we live what they call between those times. We, we live in the tension of the already and not yet. So our salvation is already accomplished in Christ. You are saved, past tense. Oh, sorry, you were saved, past tense, are saved, present tense. But you also will be saved. So there's a future aspect to your salvation where you will stand before God and he will count you righteous because you have faith in Jesus. So that we could say, well, you're already saved, but you're not yet saved. There's a tension there between the already, the not yet, whether in salvation or the kingdom of God. And in this case, the defeat of Satan and his minions has already happened at the cross. They cross. They have been plundered. And yet, not yet. So you see the not yet in Romans 16, 20. Uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Paul says to the Roman church. But I, wait a minute, I thought he already crushed Satan under his fist. He dismantled the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He triumphed, he won it. Yeah, and he will crush Satan. So there is this time frame that we live between the already and the not yet, where there's a tension. So maybe the best, best way maybe I can illustrate this is by saying, let's, let's imagine for a minute that uh, the Canada, with, their, with our great power, and our great might decided that we are sick and tired of what's going on south of us. And so we are going to take over the United States. And with our mighty army, we go down and we conquer the Americans. Uh, the, the president of the United States submits to uh, the great conquering King Trudeau and, and we, we win the battle. Officially, Canada owns all of it now. The war has been won. But... Even though the war has been won, you and I both know that there are probably some towns in Texas where the people are going to be like, nah, no. <laughs> now, we're still fighting. Like, we know the victory has been won, that our side is lost, but we're fighting still to take down as many as you people, you Canadians, as we possibly can. So it's already been won and yet not yet totally won. There, there are aspects of it that are still being mopped up, places that are still fighting. It's a legitimate fight. You go down to Texas and you fight those people, they are actually going to be shooting live bullets at you, even though we've already won. So similarly, Jesus has won the victory over Satan and his minions, and he, he, he will win the ultimate victory. He, he will crush them under our feet. But there's still this time frame where there's a legitimate battle going on, where the bullets are real. And we struggle, we wrestle in the meantime. But the good news is, victory is secure. So look, um, I talked earlier about this friend of mine who had this um, presence in, in, in his room 
and it got closer and closer and got to the point where it crushed him. What's interesting to me is I've heard that story, that kind of story from lots of people that they've woken up in the middle of the night and they felt like something's laying on our presences in their room. They're laying on them. I've had people come and get, get people don't talk about this very much. Uh, you might have had experience like this, um, but they, they know that there's some sort of malevolent spirit in their room, some sort of bad guy in, in their room trying to do something, even though they're not physical. Well, I, I have a friend who, who said that since he's been a young child, he's had this kind of consistent fight with some spirit that's been like this, right? He's not from this area, and so where he grew up there, um, th th this was a common belief. They, they believe in the physical and non-physical world, and so his family and others were like, yeah, this is a fight that we tend to have, we Christians, and so he's been afraid of that his whole life. He said he finally got to the point there. He went to a Bible college, and he finally got to the point. He did some study about what the scriptures have to teach about the power of God, the victory of God, that all of his enemies are a footstool for his feet, that the powers have, authorities have been disarmed, Jesus triumphed over them by the cross, and that ultimately the God of peace will crush Satan under his feet. He, he learned all of this stuff, and he came to the conclusion that this presence that had been visiting him for years and trying, you know, basically laying on top of him and making him feel like the breath was being crushed out of him, and he was fearful to go to sleep at night because of it, he came to the conclusion that that thing had no ultimate power over him. That its bark could be great. It could whisper fearful ideas in his mind, but at the end of the day, the power that it had was nothing compared to the power that was in him in Jesus. So he said the next time that it happened, he was laying in his bed and he felt this crushing um, presence over the top of him, and he started to say out loud, look, you've been visiting me my whole life. And I've been afraid of you in the past. I'll be honest. But I know where you're going. You know where you're going. The battle has been won. You can try to taunt me and oppress me and hurt me. But I know where you're going and you know where I'm going. So if you want to take me, take me. But if not, get out of here by the power of Jesus. And he said that was the moment that it all left. He says he's been visited by it since, but he, he's gotten to the point where he kind of laughs when it happens in the night. And he says, oh, you're back. Want me to tell you again where you're going and where I'm going. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We, we need not fear. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So in the coming weeks, we're going to delve into this deeper. We're going to talk about the ploys of our enemy, how to fight our enemy, and ultimately really focus in on the power of God over all of his rivals. Hope you join us.